Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. I would like to now introduce Imam Jamal Rahman, and he will speak, and then we will still have our three minutes of meditation, and then we're going to open it up for questions and questions and dialogue. Yes. After the meditation. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Margo. And I'm so delighted I'm going to see uh, Kathleen McKinney twice today. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, Brother Brian, thank you so much for your presentation. Really enjoyed it. So today I wanted to talk about uh, what I have learned uh, from interfaith or about interfaith with my association with Interfaith Community Sanctuary, uh, my interfaith uh, amigos. And the first thing I want to say is uh, this work of interfaith it is not only about hospitality. We say that it really is a matter of our survival. The other point I want to make is the words of this very famous Swiss theologian, Hans Kung. It, it splashes in my heart, as, as Rumi might say, when he says that there can be no peace among nations or between nations unless there is peace among the religions. And this requires interfaith dialogue, interfaith cooperation, and interfaith collaboration. So this is very powerful, beautiful, essential work. You know, I come from South Asia. I come from a country called Bangladesh. And I love the insights of this wonderful leader, Mahatma Gandhi. And he knew a lot about what it takes to create peace and harmony in multi-religious societies. He would make three points. The first point is, it is the sacred duty of every individual to have an appreciative understanding of the other person's religion. You see, it is not enough to say, I am open-minded. I am non-prejudiced. Mahatma Gandhi would say, what are you open-minded about? What are you non-prejudiced about? Second point that Gandhi made. He would say very politely that let's acknowledge, and I'm paraphrasing, that every religion has truths and untruths. And he would, he would explain that I'm not saying that your verses are not divine. They are divine. But the human mind is less than divine. When a human mind touches a divine verse, the understanding could be less than divine. That's the second point. Third point was, if a religious extremist does something wrong, commits violence, Gandhi would say, I beg you, I beg you, please do not 
do not criticize this person's religion. Rather, point out to this person verses of beauty and wisdom from this person's own tradition. That is the way to peace, to fostering harmony. So just let's be with that for a few moments. Allow that, as the Islamic mystics say, to perfume our hearts. Okay. Then I want to speak about what have we, uh, myself and my Interfaith Amigos, learned ever since 9-11. We've traveled all over America, uh, been to some foreign countries, probably done over 250 presentations. What is our experience, our understanding of what, what it means to do interfaith? We have found there are at least six stages of interfaith dialogue and interaction. The first stage, probably the most critical one, in my opinion, is coming to get to know the other on a human level, particularly someone who is outside my tribe. I make it a point to really connect with, to get to know somebody who is allergic to Islam. You know, there's a verse in the Quran, which has really become a mantra for the work of interfaith ever since 9-11. I'm not saying Muslims have followed that or are following it. I'm not saying non-Muslims have followed that or are following it. What does the verse say? The verse in the Quran says that out of a divine cosmic design, Allah has deliberately created diversity in everything, including religion in races, in languages, in color, for one primary reason. And what is that? The Quran says, so you might come to know the other on a human level. I like very much another verse from the Quran, a tongue-in-cheek verse, where the Quran says, Allah says, we have created some of you to be a trial for others. It wasn't meant to be easy. So I, I love to talk about the critical need with the other to share three cups of tea. Listen, respect, connect. What is listening? And we really, all of us, have to truly learn the art of authentically listening. I, I love the words of Rumi. Rumi says metaphorically, listening is putting your head on the person's chest and just sinking into the answer. Putting your head on the person's chest and just sinking into the answer. Am I listening? Most of the time, as somebody is talking, I'm already formulating my answer. I love that saying, an enemy, an adversary, is someone whose story you have not fully listened to. So listening, number one. Number two, respect. 
This is critical. No matter who the other is. Can I make a distinction between that person's behavior and that person's being or essence? I might be against that person's terrible, unacceptable, evil behavior. But I'm not against that person's essence, which is Christ nature, Buddha nature, Elohim nature, Allah nature. You know, there's a wonderful mystic from India, Kabir, who says when dealing with someone who is adversarial, he says, protect yourself, do what is right. But, and take the right action. But as you take the right action, he says, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, please do not keep this person's essence or being out of your heart. So as I take the right action, just keeping this differentiation, this discernment between behavior and being has the power to shift heaven and earth. I'm against the antagonism, not the antagonist. The third one is connect. Listen, respect, connect. You know, I don't have to immediately enter into theology or discussion of differences between us, religious, political, cultural, but can I connect with you on a human level? Can I share my joys and sorrows of life? Stories, human stories. You know, the wonderful saying, this universe is made out of stories, not atoms. You know, uh, it's important to ask oneself, what is your experience of coming to know the other? And by the way, you don't have to go very far to practice getting to know the other. Start in your own extended family. You know, in your own family, we have people who, are, who could be Trump supporters or, or Biden supporters or have different religious views. Start right there. You know, I write about this in my book. I made it a point after 9-11 to get together with someone who was adversarial. So I knew of two very conservative Christians who, as, uh, as I always say, were, were allergic to Islam. They just disliked the word Islam. So I, with great patience, perseverance, I attempted, endeavored to get to know them on a human level. They were very suspicious. What was my agenda? So I realized this work requires a lot of humility, a lot of sincerity, a lot of persistence. And after, I don't know, quite a number of months, it took a long time, but I'm happy to say those two, those two friends of mine, they have lost their allergy about Islam. But that's not the real story. The real story is that I got transformed. I realized in dealing with them that there is in their conservative community so much of sweetness in their community. There's such a vast range of opinions and judgments about who is a conservative Christian. It broke my stereotyping about a conservative 
very uh, narrow-minded, in my opinion, in those days, uh, evangelical Christian. And then I, I found out there was such a deep commitment to social justice issues. So my stereotyping of conservative evangelical Christians fell apart. And that to me is the real story that when you connect with someone on a human level, yes, differences can remain, but now it no longer looms as a threat. And plus it creates that environment where we can really join together, cooperate, collaborate on issues that are dear to both parties. So just be with that. That to me is the most important stage. That's, that's the, just the first one, but that's critical. Come to know the other on a human level. It's difficult, but it is possible. Okay, second stage we found is that there has to be some religious literacy. At least know the core teachings of each tradition. So for example, uh, Rabbi Ted Falcon says, the core teaching of Judaism is oneness. Pastor Don McKenzie says, the core teaching of Christianity is unconditional love. I say the core teaching of Islam is compassion, mercy. So that was stage number two. Some religious literacy is critical. Stage number three, again, very important to realize that in our holy books, not all of our verses, they conform to those core teachings. And I always like to say in the different presentations that we have found that each one of our holy books has two kinds of verses particular and universal. Particular verses, they are in desperate need of historical and textual context. Universal verses, which exist in every tradition, are filled with wisdom, beauty, and it's timeless. The problem arises when I take a, a, a particular verse when I take a particular verse and I advocate that as a universal verse. Or if I take a particular verse from your tradition and compare that to a universal verse from my tradition. You know, uh, Rumi was fond of saying in a metaphor, he said, a bee and a wasp, a bee and a wasp, they drink from the same flower. One produces a sting, other one produces nectar. Meaning, how you interpret a verse depends on two things. One is your state of consciousness, and what is your intention? But I always like to say there are verses in our holy books that are difficult. And there's no point in just doing all kinds of convoluted acrobatic posturings to, to explain them. And I always love to jokingly say, we cannot use whiteout. We cannot engage in holy amnesia. 
But what we can do is shine a higher light on those verses. They have to give us hope, inspiration, and serve the common good. Okay, if we have done these three stages, we come to the fourth stage, where now we are really able to enter into more difficult conversations. You know, the problem with interfaith over the years we found out is they are usually not, not done frequently. And when they are done, it's beautiful. There's a lot of wonderful music, beautiful food. But the problem is everybody is on their best behavior. Everybody is absurdly nice. Until the party finishes, everybody goes home, particularly in monotheistic gatherings as Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Once the party is over and people go home, Muslims become terrorists, Jews become occupiers, and Christians become liars. Unless, unless there is some mechanism where the friendship continues. Either you meet more frequently as a group, or some among them, they get together and they become friends. They connect on a human level. And that is when change happens. You're able, able to enter into more difficult conversations. Uh, you know, we found that all over America, there were wonderful Abrahamic associations. Jews, Christians, Muslims getting together, celebrating, but not very frequently. But as soon as there was a crisis in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians, that's where it stopped. Unless some have become friends and they continue their conversations. Okay. The fifth stage. To realize that if you've done those four stages, that all religions are paths to a shared universal. People usually ask me, so, you know, uh, Muslims and Jews are so eager to convert other people. Others also want to convert people to their point of view, to their religious philosophy or to their religion. What's the best way to overcome this sense of exclusivity this competition among the religions. So I say the best way is to have in your religious life, a major and a minor. My major is Islam, I'm, I'm rooted in Islam. But if somebody was to ask me, Jamal, besides Islam, and you are a Muslim because you're born into that particular religion, and most of us are what we are because we are born into it. What is another religion you like very much if you had a choice? So for me, I love Buddhism and I, I learn about Buddhism. In fact, I, I, I teach Buddhism at the university level. I, I love it that much. And I find from my personal being rooted as, rooted as I am in Islam, if I'm open to the beauty and wisdom of other traditions, this waters my Islamic roots makes me a better Muslim and a more developed human being. 
which is why we say interfaith is not about conversion. It is about completion, becoming a more complete, developed human being. A very wonderful professor of comparative religion, Houston Smith, probably one of the world's greatest contemporary uh, professor in religion, he died recently. He would say, it's like this, you know, you can look at your holy book from one angle. So I'm a Muslim, I look at the Quran from one angle, but if I study other religions, it allows me to look at my Quran from different angles, more than one angle. It gives me a more complete understanding of the Quran. And I find that to be absolutely true. Okay, my friends, the last point, the critical need for spiritual practices. I would say that the interfaith amigos have, if they have learned a couple of things. One is it is critical to get to know the other on a human level. Equally critical, probably more critical is none of this will work unless simultaneously we're all doing the inconvenient inner work of becoming a more complete, a better Christian, a better Muslim, better Hindu, better Jew, without those exercises, practices, call it meditation, call it psychological exercises, call it spiritual practices, that is critical. So I wanna give you just an example. Uh, I was once on a panel where the subject was racism. And this African-American professor told us that, did you know that uh, every 28 hours, an African-American is being killed by state-sponsored violence? We were quite aghast at that uh, controversial statistic. But he said, that's not the real problem. The real problem is the African-American is being killed a billion times a day, B for boy, a billion times a day. We said, how? He said, you know, by those biases, prejudices, stereotyping we have of the other. They are lazy, they are drained on the economy, they're violent. This is the real problem. And how do you overcome that problem? It requires practices for me to become aware of my prejudices, my biases. So in Sufism, as in all traditions, there is this critical practice of shining the light of compassionate awareness on myself and becoming aware of my ego traits as also my divine attributes. You see, I carry a piece of paper uh, in the back of my pocket. I always have it. I've been trained since I was young that you know, in the course of the day, Become aware of any time you became unnecessarily angry, jealous, hateful. Write it down. Also become aware of beautiful qualities. Maybe Jamal, you spoke the truth. It was inconvenient, but you did that. Write it down. And every evening I look at those two columns and I, I express gratitude to God. Oh God, thank you so much for making me aware of my ego traits. I shine the light of compassionate awareness on that. And that diminishes the shadows, I find, over time. I shine the light of compassion, awareness, like the sun over my divine qualities. I 
engaged in in the course of the day. And that, like the sun, flourishes and grows those plants. But that practice of diminishing my ego traits, expanding my divine qualities is critical. Let me give you just one more example and I'll, I'll end with that. I love the insight of this scientific advisor many years ago to President Carter, who was also an expert on the environment. And he said, you know, I've always thought the biggest environmental problems, they are loss of biodiversity, climate change, and ecosystem collapse. And I thought that with 30 years of good science, decades of good science, we could overcome those problems. But now I've realized the biggest environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And science cannot take care of that. We have to do these spiritual practices. So my friends, I've said a lot. Let's just be with that for a few moments and I hope some questions come up for you. And I just want to end with a saying of the prophet Muhammad who would say it very often. He would say, Jamal, when you came here from the invisible world, when you were born, everybody around you was laughing and smiling, but you were crying and weeping. Live such a life, live such a life that when you depart, everybody around you is crying and weeping, but you are laughing and smiling. I wish that my dear friends for myself, and of course, for each one of you. Thank you very much.